We are in 1 Samuel. We're going to be beginning in chapter 6. We're going to do 6 and 7 tonight. Catching people up if you have not been here. What you see in the beginning of Samuel is there's kind of a little bit of a culture war between Israel on one side and the Philistines on the other side. And Israel at this time, they actually lived up in the hill country. And the Philistines, they lived down like in the flats, down on the coast. So one, they were kind of like hillbillies. And then down in the flats, the Philistines, they had the money and they had the technology. They had iron chariots. It's the, it was the happening place. And so there would be this tug. I can't in my own mind see kids, young men that might leave the hills and they go down to Ekron, a Philistine city. And they'd see everything in there and the fun. And they'd come back to their parents. They'd be like, oh, I went to Ekron today. Man, it's so cool down there. And the dad's like, oh, really? And dad, the girls are hot. The dad would say, yeah, so is hell, son. So there was this kind of like, there was this impending battle, right, between these two, both physically and also culturally. Like, what are, what are the Israelites going to go after? And so as we've read Samuel, there was a literal battle where the Philistines came up and said, we're going we're gonna to essentially defeat you so we can take taxes from you. And they had this grand idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant, the God box, and we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle and then we'll win. God has to be for us because we've got his box. But you know what happens? They get defeated in that battle and they lose the God box. They get stolen and taken to the Philistine cities and now they're in really bad shape. But the people in Israel don't know what's happening down in the Philistine lands because, first of all, they put the God box in their temple because it was a way of saying, look, we won. Now we own you. Your box is now in our temple to our God, Dagon. And you know what happens? They leave it in there overnight. In the morning, Dagon's fallen over. I've fallen and I can't get up. So they have to help him up. They prop him back up. And then it culminates by Dagon falling and his arms, his hands fall off and his feet fall off and his head falls off. And they're like, Dagon it, get him back up. Get some super glue. Now, if you read history, when a Philistine type civilization would defeat a king, guess what they would do to demonstrate they defeated him? cut off their hands and their feet because there's no way that you can do battle against someone with your hands and your feet cut off. So it was God speaking to them, I've defeated your God. I've defeated your God. So what do they do? It becomes a hot potato. Like, well, um, it appears that the ark doesn't like it in here. So let's move it to a city. So they move it to that city bad things happen in that city. And they're like, get the box out of here. So they move it to another city. Bad things happen in that city. So they move it to another city and bad things happen. It's a hot potato. Like, how do we get wrong? Get rid of this thing. Now, if you think about this logically, doesn't that seem like the wrong thing to do? 
Like you might step back and be like, well, you know, maybe we should change our gods because this thing seems a lot more powerful than our God, but they don't. And so that brings us up to chapter six. And in those chapters, those first five chapters, what you see is God is humbling Israel. He's taking away all their pride. The Philistines defeat them. The two priests that took the ark out die. The high priest hears the news. He falls over in his chair, snaps his neck. He dies. It's the end of the world for them. They're like, this is really, really bad. But the good news is God was still at work in the Philistine land. He was still doing something. And in chapter six, we begin to see the tide change. And it changes on two big things. There's a leader who actually genuinely loves God and the people repent. And those are the two big things that begin to change Israel from leaning toward the Philistine culture. We'll see that they leaned into it really hard actually. And it begins to draw them back into God's will. So it's brilliant. Let's jump in. Verse one, chapter six. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So all those things happen in seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, very interesting. This, by the way, this is the longest Philistine conversation in the Bible. So it's like whoever wrote this had some kind of maybe spy or something. But the Philistine lords call it the Ark of Yahweh. The diviners call it the Ark of the God of Israel. Because there was an idea, and we'll look at this more, that gods were gods of only little territories. And they had power in their little territory. So he's the God of the Israel, of that little chunk of land. But Dagon is the God of the Philistine lands, right? So you, you see here a play in their theology. That's a freebie. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So finally, they're like, what do we do with this hot potato? We put it in our temple, didn't work. We put it in these cities that made things worse. So we need to send it home. Like, how do we do this? So I remember when I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, it reminded me of this story where the school of ministry went and we hiked the Rogue River Trail from like Graves Creek, it goes down to Foster Bar. And there was a, just a mixed crew on that. And the guy that kind of latched onto me was this kid. He was 18 years old. He was actually 70 when he started the school. He turned 18 in the school. His name was Matt Nicastro. And he had lived in LA his whole life, like zero nature. He was like, what's a tree? Like that's his level. So he's on this hike. I'm helping him. So we camp at this one spot. And it had all these warnings for bears. And he got real, like, dude, are there bears here? I'm like, I don't know, man. Oh, don't worry about it. And it started raining. So I'd set up this tarp, like this eight by 10 tarp that just was over me. And he's like, do you mind if I sleep underneath here with you? I'm like, sure, come on, Matt. So he slept underneath. He's like, dude, what about bears? I'm like, bro, don't, there's no bears, man. They, they just say that to scare the tourists. Don't worry about it. 
I'm a local. Don't worry about it. Well, whatever. Six in the morning, he's hitting me. Bro, there's a bear. I'm like, what? I look out between my feet where the tarp comes down and my feet are. Lo and behold, there's a little black bear right at my feet sniffing us. And he's like, dude, what are we going to do? For some reason, I just looked at him and I said, go home, bear. Go home. And Matt looked at me like, what? And the bear looked at me like, what? And then I just turned around and ran away. And Matt was like, you can do that? I said, oh yeah, they're trained here, man. You just tell them to go home. (laughs) The sad news is a year later, he was mauled and killed by a bear. I'm kidding. Come on. (laughs) They're like, go home, Ark. Like, how do we get rid of this thing? How do we send this thing home? Go home. Now, this meeting between the lords, the five Philistine lords and the diviners is not a good meeting because what they're saying is this, this God box defeated us and we send it home. We're tapping out. We're saying it's too hot to handle. Like this is a big deal to them. They know what it means. They know everything that this signifies. If we send this back, it's like giving all the momentum to Israel. So they may have won the battle against the Israelites, but they never defeated Yahweh. Always keep that in mind today. Because sometimes the Israelites, believers, do boneheaded things. Sometimes pastors do boneheaded things. Sometimes churches do boneheaded things. Sometimes denominations do boneheaded things. They drop very important doctrines. Well, just because that happens doesn't mean Yahweh got defeated. Yahweh is still doing his work even when we can't see it. Even when for seven months we're like, oh, this is the end of the world. No, it's not. No, it's not. So here's what happens, verse four. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and put the ark of Yahweh and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of the gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. I love this. These guys argue and they say, remember Egypt? Egypt. 
Remember how it got worse and worse and worse for Egypt? Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, and it was one bad thing after another after another until it got really bad. Let's learn. Let's not be stupid. Let's learn the lesson of Egypt. Let's not do that. We've already seen bad things, so here's what you need to do. You need to make God some jewelry. Five tumors and five golden mice. (laughs) Sounds like a Christmas song. (laughs) Right? Like, I don't know of worse jewelry you could ever want. Five hemorrhoids? What in the world? What would those look like? I don't even know what they look like. Five mice? How weird is this, right? Bro, what is on your ring? Oh, it's a hemorrhoid. I thought that looked good. Like, you're like, this is insane. But here's what they're trying to do. They're like, they're trying to figure out why are bad things happening to us? Don't we do the same thing? When something unexpected or bad happens to you, don't you do a little bit of a feeling? Like, why is this happening? Is this a coincidence or is there something else to it? I think there are really four major things to blame when bad stuff happens, okay? So let's imagine you know someone that gets cancer. God forbid you get cancer. Well, why'd you get cancer? Well, number one, we live in a broken world. That from Genesis 3 on, DNA mutates and can cause cancer because of the brokenness of the world we live in. Not that someone did something wrong, just, hey, that's what DNA does now. So it can just be broken world. Number two, though, it can be bad decisions. So let's say the person got lung cancer and they had been smoking cigarettes for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Probably some bad decisions went into them getting lung cancer. Smoking cigarettes, known to cause it. So number two, it can be bad decisions. Number three, bad things can happen because of bad people. So let's say you use a certain product and that product, the company had been making it for a long time and they knew it had carcinogens in it, cancer-causing agents, but they had hit it and they had covered it up for years because they wanted to make a lot of money. And you use a lot of that product and you end up getting a cancer from using that product. Well, that's because of really bad people being evil and greedy. That can be the third reason. And then the fourth reason is God did it. Psalm 115 says God is in heaven and he does what he wants. Yeah, totally. If you can rule out the first three, there might be, you might say, God, are you at work? Are you doing something? And that's what they're asking. Like there was some doubt about, was this just coincidence that we saw all these things happen? Was it just coincidence, right? Like, I'm not sure. It seemed like it was following them around, but that's not always true, right? The rooster crows and the sun comes up. Did the rooster cause the sun to come up? No, it's just a, you know, coincidence. It doesn't cause it. So there's some doubt in the ranks. And so here's what they're going to do. Let's come up with a test. And here's their test. Get a brand new cart. Do not put God on an old junky cart. Make that thing brand new, man. Straight up the lot, hasn't been used before. Get a new cart, get some cows that have never been yoked before. What happens when you mess around with a cow that's never been yoked before or never broken before? We have a term for it. It's called the rodeo, right? So it's like rodeo time. Cows are powerful. So they're not yoked. 
On top of that, they have calves. Take their calves away from them and put the calves in the barn. Now, what is a mama cow gonna do when its calf is taken away from it? It wants to get back to that calf because it loves the calf. And number two, it needs that calf to nurse, right? Because if a cow gets too full of milk, they are one unhappy creature. They're gonna start breaking cards. So they're making it even difficult, more difficult. And then thirdly, don't direct them at all. Let that thing go. Now remember, the Philistines live in the plain, the low land. Where do the Israelites live? Up in the hill. What do you think a cow does not want to do? Go uphill. It's gonna choose the easiest, simplest way possible, right? It doesn't wanna go up that hill. So they have really stacked the deck against this ever working. If this is truly God, then we're gonna see something happen here. So what happens? Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart and the box with the gold mice and the images of their tumors. It's so random. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark or the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to Yahweh. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, according to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, of Beth Shemesh. So what happens? Like a guided missile. They just head in one direction. It says they were lowing on the way. That is a term for cow complaining. It meant they did not want to go that way. They wanted to go back. They did not want to go uphill. They wanted to get back to their calves. They are literally complaining the whole way. So there's a power at work here. You ever had an animal that's barn sour? Me either until we got this horse named Misty. Pretty sure Misty is one of the four horses of the apocalypse. She's the pale horse, just brutal creature. 
So my daughter, I want nothing to do with horses. I don't like horses. Horses scare me. They're big, they're strong, and they don't talk. So I don't know what they're thinking. They just look at you with their big eyes. Are you going to kick me right now? Because it feels like that, right? That's what I think about horses. So my daughter, with this horse, it got barn sour. And it would only walk a little ways up the trails behind our house, and then it would just stop. And it did not matter what my daughter did, she could not get it to go further. And so she would come home and, I can't stand Misty, I wanna get rid of this horse. Just tears. So one day after work, I decided, okay, let's go. So I saddled up Misty, I got on Misty, and we rode out that, and we got to this place where there was a hill and it crested and then you went down the hill and she just planted and would not move. And I got on her like at five o'clock at night and it was dark by the time we got up there. It was like this time of year, cold, wet, drippy. And so I hopped off of her and I had to drag her down about 20 feet, got back on her and then started just kicking her. And she just went backwards, just mm, 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 back, just reverse, beep, 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 beep. And then up to the top again. And I'm like, oh no. I did that for the next 45 minutes. I was drenched in sweat. She is drenched in sweat. But I kept saying to myself, if I give up now, oh no, I cannot give up. Over and over and over. Finally, after 45 minutes, she is sweating. I'm sweating. I just hopped on her. It's pitch black now. She just went like this. She put her head down. Her ears went down. And she walked down that way all the way back. I beat her. Mm. Right? That's power. These two cows, no one around, they want to go back. And they don't. That is a power. And these five lords are watching this going, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Because they had this theology that said, gods only ruled their little land, the Philistine land or the Israel land or the Babylon land. That's all they could rule. And if they got out of their land, they'd be powerless. Now they're facing a God whose power stretches not just in Israel, but a power that's unlimited. And so these five kings are like, whoo, we got rid of the God box. And I just say, what fools they are. They sent away their salvation. They should have upgraded. They should have been like, hey, you know what? We're the kings. We got to make these choices. We've just seen something incredible here. I think God is constantly in the Bible demonstrating his power to the nations that surrounded Israel, allowing them to know he's actually God, allowing them to make decisions. Maybe you should upgrade, but they don't, sadly. So the ark comes to this city called Beth Shemesh. It's a Levite city. Now, why would that be important? Because the Levites were the people that were trained to take care of the ark. They were the guys that would pack up the tabernacle. They'd move the tabernacle. They were, the entire book called Leviticus is written to them. Here's what you're supposed to do. They were the trained people that should take care of the ark. So God, like a guided missile says, take this to the people that know how to handle my box. Take it right to them. They should have known what to do. Tuck that into your mind. And when it shows up, everyone's happy. Right? We thought we lost the God box. Now it's back. Like that's the happiest day 
in Israel's history. You ever lost something and found it? How's that feeling, right? A couple days ago, I reached into a pocket of an old pair of jeans and I found 20 bucks. Man, I was dancing like a frog in a blender. I was like so happy. I'm like, yeah, this is times a billion. The God box, the most important thing that Israel has was lost and now it's back. And so they sacrifice. Now, is it good that they sacrifice? Yeah. But the Levite should have known something. It's Leviticus 13. Sacrifices to Yahweh were always to be male cows. What are these cows? These cows are moms. What gender do you have to be to be a mom? I know it's unpopular today. I know I'm going to get in hot water for this. But you got to be a mama cow to have a baby. You got to be a female. They're females. The Levites should have known this. Maybe it was just convenient. Maybe they're just like, well, it's too hard to go get a male cow right now. We'll just use these. But it's a mistake. Where is the ark supposed to be? Is, this, is it supposed to be set on a rock in a field to kind of show it off? No. It has a very specific location. It's supposed to be in the holy of holies of the tabernacle. That's where it's to be kept. The Levites knew that. It's supposed to be hid away, and here's why. God is good, but God is not safe. The Bible is teaching us something. God is good, but God is not safe. Just like, is the sun good? Absolutely. Is the sun safe? Get too close to it, and something happens, right? There is that tension throughout the Bible. God is absolutely good, but look out. He is not safe. And so the God box was supposed to be kept in the Holy of Holies, separated, and only one man could go into that Ark of the Covenant, the God box, one time a year, and he had to go through a whole bunch of steps in order to go in there. So they just kind of casually set it on this rock and they throw a party. And Beth Shemesh is a border town. So I don't think they were partying by blowing a kazoo. We'll find in chapter seven, there was some stuff, some culture of the Philistines that had already crept in. Keep that all in your head as we read verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? <laughs> so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerem saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it to you. I love that. We don't want it. Hot potato, get it out of here. Okay. God is good, but he's not safe. This seems brutal, doesn't it? We read it from our viewpoint and you're like, wow, he killed 70 people. Wow. Brings up questions in my head. The Philistines, they had the 
Ark of the Covenant that God boxed for seven months. They had some tumors, no doubt. There were some problems, but it never tells us God killed anybody, right? No one's dead in the Philistine land and they probably did all kinds of things in that God box. They probably carried it around and dropped it. I don't know, man. They didn't have a lot of respect for it and God didn't kill them. Why not? Because they didn't know better. God doesn't judge people on something they don't know. Read Luke chapter 12. Two servants, one knew and one did not. Very different outcomes from them. Read 1st, 2nd Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 that says, hey, it's better to have never believed than to have believed and left like a dog returning to its vomit because you're gonna be held to the knowledge that you have. God does not judge people based on what they did not know. The Philistines didn't know. What did God direct the God box to get back to? A Levite city called Beth Shemesh because they should have known. Number two, in religions, there's always like this thing where their God is for them and against all the bad people. God's for the good people and then against the bad people, right? That's religion for thousands of years. Islam's that way. God is, the, God is for Muslims and he's against the infidels. That's still in there. Here's what you see in the Bible that's very unique. You see this, God is against sin, period. Sin in his people or sin in other people. God has this hatred toward greed. God has this hatred toward wrath and violence and murder. God has this hatred toward rape and that stuff because he's trying to get the hell out of earth. And Peter would put it like this. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. That God is gonna actually hold me to a higher account. Why? Because I know more. It starts with me. Because God has a hatred for sin, period. And then, I think it's an example because Josephus says this. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. I think he's right because there's a little bit of Hebrew that it appears that they looked into it. So they had to lift this thing called the mercy seat and they just want to peek in, right? It's like Pandora's box. What's inside there? I don't know. You check. No, you check. No, you. someone decides, all right, let's look. So they lifted the mercy seat to look inside. They got a box. The word for the mercy seat in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, becomes the word in the New Testament, written in Greek, that we translate propitiation. That's what that mercy seat is called. So if you would, it's like they, they lifted off the mercy seat, they, they lifted off the propitiation, and they want to look in that thing that, by themselves. And I might be stretching this a little bit, but I'll gladly admit that. I think it's a picture that sometimes people want to approach God on their own terms, not through the mercy seat, not through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. I don't need the cross. I don't need Jesus. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to tell him what I did, that I'm a good dude. I don't need that stuff. Oh, really? I always answer people like that. Let's just say this. Forget the Bible. 
Let's just say this. Let's say, and this is from Francis Schaeffer. I didn't make this up. Let's say that there's hung around your neck a tape recorder. And every time you tell somebody to do something or not to do something or to act this way or not to act that way, every time you make a rule, that tape recorder re- records what you said. At the end of days, before you and I stand at the great white throne judgment, God doesn't judge you. He just says, play the tape. How many of us keep our own rules How many of us do all the things we say we should do and don't do all the things we say we should not do? Everyone fails that. We all would say guilty as charged. Oh, no. Hey, I want the mercy seat on. I want his propitiation there. Don't take that away. I'm not approaching God on my goodness. I'm not approaching God apart from Jesus Christ. I know who I am. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, I think, a picture of what's happened right here. They want to God on their own terms. God said, yeah, that doesn't work with me. That doesn't work with me. So, yeah. What's sad, though, to me is the Israelites treat the ark exactly like the Philistines do. It's a hot potato. Hey, call up Kirjath Jerem. Hey, come down here and take this thing. We're having trouble down here. Get it out of here. And we're going to see maybe why God was so harsh to the land, picking up chapter seven. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took up the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge of the ark of Yahweh. <laughs> I just think, poor kid, man. Like, really? All right. So it comes up there. It's in his house. Now, how would you like that? How would you like to have the ark of God Almighty that just killed 70 people to be stationed in your living room? Watching everything you do. Watching what you watch on TV. Watching how you treat your wife. Watching how you treat your husband. Watching how you treat your kids. Watching how you do your taxes. Watching everything you do. How would you like that? Right, verse three says, from that day, the ark was lodged at Kirlech Jerem a long time past, some 20 years. All the house of Israel lamented before Yahweh. It's going to be in that house for 100 years until 2 Samuel 6, when David goes and picks it up. How would you like that in your house? You'd probably, probably at some point be like, please put a blanket over it, put something. I just want to see it. But here's the truth. God is in your house because he's in you. He is watching. He does pay attention. And I would argue it does matter. It does matter. So here's what we're going to see. From verse three down, there's big problems in Israel. And I think sometimes, like, I remember when I was young, I would look at adults, like especially in the church, and I always think like adults had everything figured out. Is that true? No, just we're really good at keeping the secret that we're a mess. If you could get backstage in anybody's life, it's a mess. The question is, what do you do when your life's a mess? What do you do? And this is one of the best texts in the Bible on how to recover and pivot when it's a mess. So check this out, verse four. Verse three, excuse me. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, 
If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. So good. Finally, right? If you're with us in Judges, now we're in this book, it's like, oh, they're finally doing it right. You might say, yeah, Matt, but they go back to their junk. Well, just enjoy the moment at least. We get one little glimmer of light. And what I love here is this. He says, do this with all your heart and put away the Ashtaroth. Now, what's Ashtaroth? She was the goddess of love and war, which are the same thing, aren't they? The people you war with are the people you love, right? So the Ashtaroths were, she was the goddess of love and war, very perverse way that you would worship her. With all your heart and put that stuff away. Now, it's very important to be practical when it comes to sin, no doubt. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Put away the asteros. Practical. If you struggle with pornography, get a flip phone. If you struggle with alcohol, don't go to the bar, right? There's just simple things. I'm not gonna provide avenues to fulfill the flesh. We all need that. I remember when I taught on Romans 13, 14, years and years ago, right after that message, this is what I said. I said, mortify the deeds of the flesh. You just put it to death. This guy came up to me and just handed me his phone and said, here, this thing causes me a lot of trouble. Um, you're gonna get phone calls from all the drug deals in Grants Pass, all the drug dealers. I said, awesome, I will answer them. So for the next like three hours till his phone went dead, I didn't have the charger for it. I just answered phone calls. It was the best day of my life. It was so fun. One guy was like, Pastor Matt? I'm like, who is this? Click. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, okay. So fun. I quoted verses to people. Like I can just imagine them. Oh my goodness, I talked to God. Bad trip, bad trip, right? That's what you got to do. Like if that's causing you, practically you get rid of it. Yes. But if all you do is practical stuff, there's no heart in it, it will never last. It will fail. God is after our hearts. He wants to change, regenerate us into a different kind of person. That's the power. And then he says this, I love this. And direct your heart, direct your heart to Yahweh. Who's in charge of your heart? Is it just your feelings and your feelings do whatever they want? They're up and down. They're all over the place. I don't think that's biblical. I think Samuel hit it right here. You're in charge of your heart. You direct your heart. It doesn't do its own thing and whatever wander and do. No, you get to direct your heart. Here's the best example I have from my house. A couple years ago, one of my daughters just having a meltdown. Every kid has them. And we're like, calm down, calm down. So and she's just like, I can't calm down. Just, you know, that whole thing, just crying, crying, crying. 
One of my other daughters knocked on the table. She was upstairs, knocked, made a knocking sound on the table and then called up to this boy that she kind of liked. Hey, so-and-so is here. She's like, oh, he is? Man, she snapped right out of it. Oh, oh yeah, okay, I'll be right down. Why? Because you're in charge of you. You're in charge of you. Where are you directing your heart? Where am I directing my emotions and my thought life? Am I grabbing a hold of it? Am I Philippians chapter four, verse aiding it? Or am I just following the randomness of my feelings? Well, you can direct your heart. So he says, you start directing your heart and you serve the Lord. Mission. Every single one of us, Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared in advance good works for you and me to walk in. And when people, what I've seen now in almost 20 years of ministry, when people lose mission, they start making missteps. Serve him, be involved, be engaged in the kingdom. And it's amazing how, how fewer mistakes you make. Just brilliant, brilliant advice. So here's what happens. Verse five. And Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. A water offering was something that you got nothing back from it. All went into the ground. Most of the other sacrifices, you'd get something back. You'd burn parts of it, then you'd get some barbecue. So a water offering is we are 100% giving this to God, not trying to get something back from him, not trying to manipulate him. They poured it out and they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, your God, our God, excuse me, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel and Yahweh answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Great victory how different this is from the previous battle. When they thought, we got God in a box, we'll bring him out and he'll win for us. This time they know it's not a formula. It's our heavenly father. He's gonna save us. And then I love verse eight. Keep praying for us. The people are realizing now, we need a mediator. Like God, he's good, he's not safe. Well, there needs to be a mediator between us and God. Someone has to stand be between us. So you're seeing this building of theology, especially in the book of First and Second Samuel, that are pointing us to this need for mediation. Now, anyone think of why that might be important? 
Yeah. Because there was a mediator who literally hung between heaven and earth and mediated for us. That's where this is all pointing. It's building into the Israelites. Hey, you need a mediator. You can't go up to the God box and pop it open yourself. You can't do that. You need a mediator. Love it. So what you see is God gives them this victory. God rushes to the repentant sinner over and over in scripture. That's the message. If we turn our hearts to him, man, he rushes to us and responds to us and gives them a great victory. Then Samuel, verse 12, took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. And he said, till now Yahweh has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Guys know that song, I'll Raise My Ebenezer? Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. It's from this text right here. I think it's important for us, like on words, for us to know like, what we're singing. Sometimes I think we just sing songs, we have no idea what we're even singing. One of my daughters, when she was really small, was going around her house and she was trying to sing the song, um, Jesus, I adore you, I lay my life before you. Right? Father, I adore you, I lay my life before you. Spirit, I adore you, you know that song? But she was too young to, uh, to know what adore was. So she replaced it with, Jesus, I ignore you, and I lay my life before you. So I was like, hey, time out, sweetie. It's not saying, Jesus, I ignore you. It's saying, Jesus, I adore you. To which she put her hands on her hips and she said, well, daddy, I ignore you. Okay, sweetie, there you have it. We should know what we're singing. When we say that, it's, it's referencing this right here. And it's a way that Samuel is saying, remember your history. Remember how you failed. Remember how you treated God. Remember how you treated the Ark of the Covenant. Remember how you failed. And remember when you repented and remember when you turned wholeheartedly to to God, what God did for you. Remember that. Do you want the God that delivers you or do you want to be the Philistines with hemorrhoids? Because that's your choice. What do you want? And it seems easy, but unless we set up memories, Ebenezer's, the enemy is really good at only reminding us of the happy times and getting us to forget the hemorrhoids. That's what the enemy does. So Samuel says, I'm not going to let that happen. We're gonna set this up as a memory to you. I tell people all the time, write a sin journal. Write it out now. Because you in six months will forget how you feel right now. Write it down. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. The change is you have a leader that loves God and a people who repent and say, our hearts are are after God. And the contrast is simple. You can be a Philistine with rats and hemorrhoids, or you can serve God wholeheartedly. 
and have peace and have peace. And it's easy, right? Right now, easy in the sanctuary. But it's hard out there. That's why we have to direct our hearts. So if you read the Psalms over and over, it says this, early in the morning, I will. Why? The psalmist knew something. If, if I don't direct my heart when I first get up, then I'm gonna be built on feelings and do everything through feelings and it's gonna take me astray. So I'm gonna rise up early in the morning and I'm gonna direct my heart to God so that that direction carries me through the next 15 hours. Try it. I dare you. Try it. Because you are in control of you. If you say tomorrow morning, God, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna direct my heart toward you. Watch and see the good direction your life takes. Not Philistines and hemorrhoids, peace and blessings, abundant. So Jesus today, we are so glad for your mercy, your propitiation on our behalf. You took what we deserved so we get what you earned. And I pray for myself, I pray for every person in here. May we be a people who direct our hearts to you and follow you wholeheartedly. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.